It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In 2016, a 57-year-old man murdered his 50-year-old wife and 19-year-old daughter with a sawn-off shotgun before killing himself in a car park in Lincolnshire. He subjected his wife and three children to a campaign of domestic abuse and coercive control for 27 years before carrying out the killing. Luke Hart was raised within this environment and, along with his brother Ryan, survived the abuse. Without the visible bruises and scars, coercive control is arguably the most hidden and hardest to detect. This is his story. My name is Luke Hart um, and I am 30 years old and I, along with my brother Ryan, tell our story about how we grew up with domestic abuse, but particularly coercive control. So our father was never violent, but he was incredibly dominating um, throughout our lives. And me and my brother always were very aware of the sacrifices that mum made um, so we could have a good education as children. Um, and our mum was from a very poor family and she couldn't afford to escape. She couldn't afford to raise us by herself. So me and my brother just did well at school because we wanted to make mum proud. Um, but then we turned out to be quite smart. And Charlotte too, our younger sister, who was seven years younger than us, was very good at school as well and very intelligent young girl. Uh, and me and my brother just worked hard throughout school in the hope that one day we could maybe give mum and Charlotte the life that they could they weren't permitted to have under our father. And um and we sacrificed a lot, I think, in the hope that one day we could kind of create what we didn't have. And it all seemed to be going really well. We thought we could manage our father because he didn't seem to be dangerous. He seemed to be incredibly, incredibly controlling. Can I ask how old you were when you first sort of realised that he was behaving in a way that wasn't kind of... Yeah, well, I think we never really... So strangely enough, we never really felt uh, amicably towards our father. So often children can feel really conflicted when they grow up with domestic abuse, but... Our father almost completely ignored us for the most part, for the okay. first 10 years of my life, I remember. Um, the first part of our life, we actually lived in the middle of nowhere in a rundown farmhouse um, where we just grew our own food and our parents didn't work at all. So we just lived there and our father was basically invisible to us and he didn't get involved in our lives. And and I remember, because I met you at a, a women's conference in Brighton, and I remember you um, mentioning the circumstances of how you got to end up living in the middle of nowhere in the country. Can you right, explain yeah. that bit? Because I was quite struck by what you said. Yeah, so we thought at the time, 
And we were told by our father, we grew up in the country because he decided it was best for us. And he often said it was to keep me safe in particular, because the story that our father always um, repeated back to us was that when I was three years old, I'd had an anaphylactic shock after accidentally eating food that was contaminated with a peanut. And he said, if we moved to the countryside, we'd grow our own food, it'd be pure, it'd be safe, and it'd be idyllic. And we kind of did enjoy it, actually. I mean, it's hard not to enjoy just living in the countryside with animals and growing your own food. But what we found out um, after the murders of our mum and sister in the police investigation was that our mum's sister was actually there on a day where our father had said to mum that she had to leave her friends, family, and work in the town that they were living in. And uh, mum basically said she wasn't going to do it. Well, she didn't want to move she to She didn't the want to move, yeah, because right. she had her friend. And mum was very much a family person. She was just just oozed love and just wanted to be around people and look after people and, and really cared about friends and family. Um, but our father, obviously, he wanted to isolate our mum. And he basically really calmly picked up a peanut and fed it to me in front of mum and uh, her sister. When you were three. Uh, when I was three. And I started to have an um, uh, anaphylactic shock and mum and her sister took me to hospital. And the adrenaline, uh, EpiPens and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then I, was, I recovered and I was safe afterwards. But um, effectively, our father had kind of used me as a pawn to try and kind of as a lever to control my decisions. And mum and her sister obviously couldn't prove what happened, right? It was an unfact shock. It's an accident, right? Who's going to believe? Who can even prove that was done intentionally? So they were, they were pretty shocked. But I think mum couldn't leave. So her, her, her sister said, I offered for your mum to come and live with me. But she just lived in the caravan, right? She didn't have any money. And mum was like, I can't bring my kids up here. Like, it's not, it's not healthy for them and it's not a good place. She tried from that point on to manage our father in order to keep her safe. And she did an incredibly good job at just kind of placating him and, and, and soaking it up and trying to shield us from it as much as she could. What are the things that he sort of used to do? Because I think a lot of people struggle with it. It's like, well, if he wasn't violent, yeah. what is coercive control? So what were the things on a day-to-day -day basis that you realized were just sort of really weird? Yeah, so like I said, the first 10 years of our life, our father was primarily concerned with isolating mum. He didn't really pay much attention to us kids. And, and you we, saw that, did you? We we didn't really pay any attention to our parents at all, actually. Yeah, so we pretty much ran around, we built dens and we climbed trees and, and we, we used to just sneak out at night time and play when we went to be in bed. We just didn't, we did what we wanted. We were kind of wild, feral kids. But when we, our father actually moved our family to a village, right? When I got into a secondary school at the age of uh, 11 and I think, funnily enough, that was because mum was still too close to her family and friends. So he moved us to a village, which was further away. But by moving us to a village, mum and our father now had to work because we had no money. We couldn't grow our own food. They had to go and get jobs. And also the world was at our doorstep. There were people running around outside, kids we went to play with and, and other families. That was when our father became very controlling very quickly, right? He was almost nonchalant about us because he didn't need to be. We had freedom in the countryside, but we were totally cut off from the world. And it was only when there was a risk that we might become integrated that he became really involved in our day-to-day -day right, actions. Because he was like, I need to control you I need to make because sure there's because... so much other stuff going on that is out of my control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he saw the world as very threatening. He said, everyone's a paedophile, everyone's a criminal, everyone's bad, blah, 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 blah. Your own place you're safe is here kind of thing. So he always told us, crafted this narrative of outside world bad, home safe, but actually Anyone who knows about the, the law and, and women suffering violence from men knows the home is the most dangerous place and often that Absolutely. narrative reinforces it, right? But um, he, he obviously saw the world as a very risky place for him because it was a place that we might find freedom. Um, but he, he, so the funny thing is, coerced control is incredibly trivial, actually. Um, and it, 
it rules over the tiniest aspects of your lives, which often makes you think living in it, it can't be that big a deal, right? So in our experience, our father constantly crafted a narrative of poverty. He said, we can't afford to do all of these things. So he would often present us with a dilemma, but actually he'd crafted that dilemma, right? right. Because he, he was disposing of our money, actually. He was not working. He was doing everything he could so that he could always say we didn't have the money. Right. And um, there were many examples where, for example, he would make mum think she'd made the decision to control or sacrifice parts of her life. So he'd say to mum, you can go and see your friends for a coffee, but remember that we basically we haven't got any spare cash, so it's fuel or food. You can go out, but the kids might not be able to eat next week or the week after, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, he wasn't controlling mum. From mum's perspective, she was making the best decision for her children, right? right. And for us kids, our father would say, sure, you can go and do after school, but um, you know what? Like Your mum might not be able to go and see your friends for coffee. So we cancelled our hobbies, and mum was cancelling her stuff. Meanwhile, our father was working less and less and actually gambling, giving money away to people online that he didn't know. He was doing everything he could. And we couldn't understand. We thought our father was incompetent, right? We thought his incompetence made us poor, made our life hard. But it was only after the murders that we realized the mentality of a coerced controller, how planned it is, how intentional it is. He valued controlling us far more than he valued money, right? He, the price of control was poverty and he was well willing to pay that. And I think it got down to the level where the only room in our house that we could afford to heat was a living room, right? So we all had to sit where we could see us, so the living room. controlled the heating. We weren't allowed to the heating, right? We couldn't afford it. So he said, the only room we heat is the living room. We had to all sit there where he could see us, where we had to do our homework, where he would like basically be able to barrage us with insults and undermine us and do what he wanted to. We weren't even allowed to touch the light switches. If we found a light on in the house, he'd lose it because he said, you don't know how much this costs, you stupid kids. Like you can't afford this. You have no idea what it's like trying to manage all this money, whatever. Like, so for us, we just, you become really passive because everything is a tripwire and everything is something that you think you're responsible for your family plummeting into these into poverty, frankly. And you're as a kid, you think you're greedy, you think you're selfish, you think, well, everything I want, there's a there's a it's a limited sum game where someone else loses. So as children, um, and our mum, you end up learning to sacrifice stuff, right? And you actually learn to not want stuff in the first place because everything you want you see as a burden on someone else. And before you know it, you literally you often think of the abuser before you even think of yourself, right? Because if our father wasn't happy, we weren't allowed to be happy. So we always used to think, what does our father want? What does our father want? Sacrifice everything we need to, do everything he wants. And then, and only then, may we be able to look after ourselves. And before you know it, you're this kind of, people see you as a really moral kind person, but it's not from a moral place, all of this self-sacrificing and thinking of others. It's from a place of fear and it's a place of, frankly, just trying to survive. And I think, over time, you don't see the abuser doing this to you. You see it simply as you having to live within the constraints. But the real key of a manipulative quest controller is they impose those constraints. Right. So they're almost architects of the circumstances. And then within those limited circumstances, you basically have to navigate your own poverty or your own restriction or your own passivity. And eventually you end up without a life. And as far as you know, you're the one who's made those decisions. Yeah. And actually, our father used to, I mean, he used to undermine us pretty directly every now and again. And, and so he wouldn't shout, would he? he often he wouldn't need to. So right. So he wasn't like a big, intimidating, sort of, you know, tough guy. It was right. more the kind of quiet, insulting, controlling. And imposing like pretty that? hard economic boundaries, right? And yeah. I think actually the really interesting thing is there were times when I became, I was when the, the red rage came over me, I was willing to beat my father because I was so angry. Even though it's hard to see how he was doing it, 
We thought he was an incompetent man who was ruining our lives through his incompetence. We didn't realize how purposeful it was, but hated him. And there were times, so one example was when um, our father had cancer when we were maybe like 11, he had prostate cancer. And every single day our lives had to revolve around his prostate cancer, right? Every, if we weren't crying, he said we didn't love him. If we were trying to live our own lives, he said we weren't thinking about him enough. It was, everything had to revolve around him. And he blamed the prostate cancer on stress. And he said, we caused the stress. So every, basically he always said that um, we were killing him, right? Every time we stressed him out, it was, you're giving me cancer, you're killing me, you've done this before, you do it again. And when mum had um, cancer, a serious cancer, just a couple of years later, at the dinner table, she told us, and our father launched into this massive tirade where he was basically, he screamed at us because none of us knew what it was like for him that his wife had cancer. And it was all about him and it was everything about him. And my mum was in tears, Charlotte was in tears, everyone was in tears. And I just went to pure rage. And I remember squaring up to him, I was maybe 13, 14. And what he actually did was he went from pure spitting anger and shouting when he got close and saw in my eyes that I wasn't afraid of him in that moment. He actually crumpled into the floor in the field position and started crying. And he was just whimpering that his whole family picks on him. We're conspiring against him. It's all of us against him. No one understands him, et cetera, et cetera. And he would often do that. So rather than being violent, he actually was very careful to avoid violence always. And he would flick into the victim. And when you're there bearing down over your own father, you feel sick, right? Seeing that man doing that, it makes you feel really viscerally sick. Um, and also you think you're the abuser or something. You think there's something wrong with you in that moment because you're the one mm. with the power dynamic. You feel like you're using his techniques. You are, you're like him. And our father was our anti-role model. We wanted to be everything the opposite. So that froze us up constantly, mm. right? And actually, there were many times where we wanted him to hit us because we would have presented that with glee to anyone that would look, right? And he was precisely the same. And there were many times, actually, where he would egg us on, I think, trying to bring that about, trying to create a bruise or something for himself because he would often try and banish us from the home and, and do all sorts of things. And I think he was often looking for an excuse. Right. So our father actually makes it so scary as we found out in the police investigation he was willing to kill us from the very moment pretty much he met our mum and we were born but he was never willing to hit us and that's what's so terrifying you, but not hit us and i think that shows you. the level of extreme control right and the, and the cold-heartedness of it that he was actually willing to to take our lives away but he wasn't even willing to like smack us around you know did you feel that growing up i mean obviously you felt the control and you could see um what was going on but did you ever feel like he might do that to you it's hard thinking back but i think in my mind now from what i remember i don't remember being physically afraid of my own father right. i don't remember being physically afraid what i was afraid of and what he made a big point of is he could make us homeless at any point and it was always economic threats and we and mum mum was mum suffered from a range of health conditions right which meant she couldn't work more than part-time minimum wage so mum earned six grand a year when she was killed which was never enough to look after us and it was always very clear that if our father just upped and left, then we would have been stuffed. And he was always basically saying, if you don't like it, the alternative is to go on the street and make it out there instead. And I think for me in particular, the fear was just desperate poverty for all of us. And I think that's why me and Ryan worked so hard at school. We were so obsessed with money, just trying to fix a problem with money because our father had constructed a narrative growing up. It was all about money. Mm. It wasn't him. It was about money. And actually, he he always put himself in it with us. He would often say, like he was the one making selfless decisions for us. He was worrying about money so we didn't have to. He was in the problem too. We never actually saw him as outside of it creating the problem. Um, but we always thought money would fix the problem, right? So we went off in the world, try and raise money, send it home, 
try and create a new life for Mum Charlotte and also to give our father money because we thought the poverty was what made him who he was. What age were you when you got to that point where you were like, mm. right, we need to get Mum out and we need to get Charlotte out? Because I remember you saying at some point you mm. went, they're the ones in danger. And you go to that point as to where you and your brother went, we need an action plan now. So when we were quite young, like teenagers, I remember we all went through a phase of just begging mum to leave. Like mum is horrible. None of us like him. He's incompetent. He's an idiot. Like just, he's not a nice person. None of us like him. Let's go. And mum, mum couldn't leave. Like I said, she had no money. So there was no opportunity. There was no alternative. So she would often say to us, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Just concentrate on school. And if you don't like your father, you can have a good job and live whatever life you want in the future, right? And that was when we, the urge was quite, I guess, primary in us. But it very quickly became aware that we couldn't leave, right? And I think then we started to sublimate it into schoolwork. And for a while, we just went quiet and we just focused and we just like, let's try and, let's see how smart we are. Let's see yeah. if there's a possibility. And you were doing well at school, right? We were doing well. Yeah, and no yeah. one ever saw a problem. I mean, at school, no one ever raised concern because we were, we were outperforming our peers precisely because we had a huge responsibility or we felt we did and we had a huge goal that we were trying to move towards. And we did really well at school. And frankly, it was the only thing we were allowed to do, right? Like it was the only piece we had from our father. It was the only place where we felt that we could, you know, apply yeah, ourselves. So your and, sanctuary. Yeah, and it was our sanctuary yeah. where, and, and in many ways, like, because it wasn't violent, we weren't immediately worried about mum at home or anything. It was just nice to be away, you know? Um, but it was really when, we, when we'd basically started working for Ryan and I, because Sharp was still at school at that point, um, where we were saving up money and we were like, you know, we can buy mum, we can get rent, we can buy them whatever furniture they need, we can get them set up and maybe even get mum a car if she needs it. And it actually took a while to persuade mum from that point on um, that she could have a better life because she didn't want us to waste our money on her is what she said, because she'd resigned herself to it, like that home and live vicariously through us, right? She was so proud of us kids and she would just talk our praises to everyone that she knew. And that was just how she lived. Like she'd never considered living differently for herself. Um, and I think for Ryan and I, when we left um, home, it became really hard on Charlotte. Our father just wanted mum, right? And I guess us kids were always a burden, we're always a distraction, we're always something mum had to do that wasn't our father's wishes. So Charlotte got it really, really hard. And I think we never realised- she was how old when you guys moved out? So when I left um, for university when I was 21, Charlotte would have been about 14. Charlotte got it really hard for my father. He just constantly undermined her because Charlotte was really supportive of mum, like emotionally. Charlotte was like mum's best friend and always trying to kind of, I suppose, empower her in some sense and just be like, mum, like, believe in yourself and like, you can do stuff. And our father, I think, saw that as a really immediate threat because all mum needed was the hope, right? And then she could leave in any, any day. And I, our father was really, really harsh towards Charlotte personally. For me and my brother, he saw us as financial threats more than anything else. And I suppose that was a long way off. So he used to undermine us, but not with the intensity that he undermined Charlotte, because I think he realized that actually the boys, you know, so long money, money's part of the problem. I think he knew that money actually wasn't the source of the problem. Um, it was really just that he just, he destroyed mum's hope. And as long as her hope was destroyed, she never would have left. Mm. Um, but we, we managed to, in the end, persuade mum and Charlotte that we could look after him and, we would just give them the space to just live however they wanted to. And um, and were you quite scared though when, because you managed to buy a house, didn't you? Well, we rented a house that was about oh, five miles away yeah. um, because mum mum didn't want to leave and I can't blame her. I mean, we felt, I did feel uncomfortable because our father was just the man that he was. There was some vague sense of, I don't feel comfortable. But at the same time, um, 
mum just moving down the road allowed her to work at the same supermarket that she'd always worked at and mum would have really struggled to get another job anywhere else in the country yeah. and her so, only friends were there so it was yeah. like for her the center of her life so you figured that your dad would be really cross um yeah. but in the end it was worth doing and it would be sort of okay yeah and we thought well again we thought our problems were down to money so the plan was we get mum shot and we just give our father money too and then they can go and live their own lives with their own hobbies and they can do whatever they want and then mum and our father don't have to battle poverty together because poverty's gone. We've solved right. that you just move on, right? And you can live whatever life you want, wherever yeah. that would have been. Um, and because our father had never been violent, we always thought for him to be dangerous, you know, all of that control and domination would have had to, that's a precursor to violence, which would be a precursor to murder, right? And we'd never even got to the violence stage. So yeah. we thought maybe, you know, actually she's at more risk staying than being away anyway. Right. Um, and our father was becoming more and more controlling of mum in the home because mum knew about mm, six months before we left that she was going to leave, right? Because when she'd accepted to, and she was like, yeah, let's start planning and whatever. And she obviously hadn't told him, but she- He didn't know. But you three were, yeah, yeah. obviously in on it. And, and we were on it and planning, it. right? And our father could actually see in mum's eyes that she was a different person because suddenly she wasn't, she was lighter about it all and she she knew that there was a way out and it just the pressure was being relieved i suppose and she had hope and dreams and she was really excited about it actually and our father though he didn't know what was going on he knew that mum was finally thinking differently and, mm. and thinking about a different future and that was enough actually as we found out subsequently for our father to start planning to kill us all that was when he started um basically researching other media reports of many done the same thing um and basically weeks before we'd even started to get the rental place, he was writing the murder note and he'd sharpened a machete in the garage. And he also, um, it was only after we left that I think he sawed off the shotgun, but he was ready to kill us all in the home. And his, his initial drafts were to kill all of us and the dogs. And then um, after we left, it became very much just focused on mum because he realized that we'd all gone and it was very hard to get us all in one place. But actually a lot of his emails after we left to our mum were horribly, sickeningly conciliatory. So he was saying to mum, um, you know, oh, I understand the wrong I've done and I understand why you've done this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're gonna have to meet up because you need your documents. I've got some photos of the family you might wanna see. We should get all the kids together and the dogs and go for one last walk by the river or something and sort it all out. And he was trying to get us all together actually um, for clearly just to kill us all at once. But me and Ryan worked abroad and Charlotte basically was, she'd, um, she was staying with a boyfriend because she just couldn't handle being at home. Um, so our father thought he was only ever gonna get mum, basically. Um, and Charlotte happened to be there on the day, but for our father, um, he turned the gun on Charlotte first before turning on mum, because it was a way of causing mum even more distress, frankly, in the same way that he used me as a pawn at the very start of the relationship. He used Charlotte in, well, much more severely towards the end. So he was always willing, and he always did use the dogs, he used us, he used everything we cared about as ways to hurt us because he knew that we were so cold to him. Mm. Um, and that was always the way that he operated. So your mum and Charlotte, um, sorry to go back, but yeah. when they left and you got them out, it's a really weird question. So apologies yeah. if it seems weird. What time of day did they leave? And was it a case of pack your bags and just go because we don't want dad to yeah. see you leaving? It was basically, we, so we couldn't pack in advance, obviously, because our father would have known something was going on. But um, basically, our father went for work. He went to work one morning. He always came back at lunch, right? Just check on mum if she was there or whatever. He, he never stayed at work much. He was always coming back to keep an eye on us. 
so we had maybe we had maybe like three hours or something from when um my father left for work but he was being incredibly he was physically impounding mum because he knew that something was different right even though mm. he didn't know what so uh, he went to work well basically what well, mum was mum was faking going to work that morning right okay um, but our father insisted on driving it that day in particular. So he was basically, he hid all the car keys, right? And all the house keys and everything. And actually we found out that he'd, he'd installed a safe in the garage that he chained up and drilled in that had mum's driving license, passport, or everything she'd need to create her own uh, rent somewhere herself. So we had to rent the house under our name and to have her own bank account and everything. It was all locked up in, in this safe, all the house keys, all the car keys, everything. So that morning we're expecting our father to leave a mum to leave for work afterwards and just to stay there, right? Ron and I had flown back abroad the night before. We were sat in a moving van in the road next to our own home and the, the car never left. And then we saw like our father driving mum the other way. So he was driving mum to work um, because he didn't trust her, right? He didn't know what she was doing. He just so didn't trust you her. You and day. your brother are sat in the van going. Who sat in a moving van in the road wait. next door? And we just saw our car going the other way. And we're like, I hope you didn't see us in this moving van. Yeah. That is, that's going to, he's going to lose it basically. But so we took mum to work. Then we had to drive in the moving van to get mum from work. Then we had to come back. And our father did go to work at that point. And we had maybe two hours. And mum, we just had to get, basically, we just had to get um, a bed for mum. And we just had to get, like, the dog's food and beds and things. Um, and some really basic stuff so she could start. And, uh, and and that was when we found this safe. Because mum couldn't tell us about it, right? So we turned up and there was a safe. And um, I had to get, basically, a locksmith. Because if we didn't get stuff out of the safe, mum couldn't live. Basically, couldn't have a bank account. We'd have to keep coming back from abroad to give mum cash. like, And that was what we were having to do, frankly, up to that point. Um, so we had to get into there and I, I remember ringing locksmiths and just being like, can you come over? Can you come over? I'll like, be there later today. I was like, need you in 20 minutes. Like yeah. you have to come. Right. And then eventually we got one who came and me and my brother were sweating, putting all this stuff in the back of the moving van. Probably terrified. Yeah. And mum was running around quickly, just trying to grab some sharks clothes or her own stuff and just chucking it in the back. And the, the uh, locksmith turned up and he, I remember him just sort of looking at us. And seeing him just clock immediately what was going on because he never asked us. Like, we were in such a rush, right? And, like, he turned up and I was like, in the garage now, we need you to break it open. And the guy, I, my first instinct would be, they're robbing it. They're trying to break yeah. in, right? What the hell do they need me for? But he knew immediately we're breaking out, not breaking in. And he just really? looked at us and he just said, like, where is it? He went as quick as he could, went in and did it. And he just said, good luck. And off he went. <sighs> because I think, and what shocked us actually in retrospect is, I wonder how many times locksmiths are in precisely those situations. And the thing that really shocks as well is even the estate agents had said to us when we were looking for somewhere that father was trying to sell our own home at that point as well, right, as a, as a side story, because he was trying to isolate mum again, move her away now that we'd all left. So we had to find somewhere to rent very quickly with mum and Charlotte and also the dogs. And there's not any places you can rent with dogs, right? So the only place we found was the same estate agents that were trying to, our father was trying to sell the house street. And we said to him, please do not send anything home about us looking for rent properties. Don't let any of this information cross to our father. Because we just we just don't want him to ruin this opportunity, yeah. right? And find a way of, because he always threatened he'd cancel the house insurance and burn the house down and leave us with nothing and we'd be totally screwed. Um, and, and that kind of worried us. We worried he might generally do something self-destructive and stupid like that. But um, the statement said to us like, don't worry, we help women escape all the time. And actually they said, you'd be surprised a lot of statements don't do this precisely because the perpetrators will turn up and just cause chaos, demanding to know where their family or wow. their wife is or where they've gone. Uh, and they can just be too much hassle. 
And it and at the time we were like, thank you, I guess, and just moved on. But actually, with the knowledge we know now, like even that locksmith and the estate agents, we were at the most crucial time because most women who are killed after from abuse are killed after they've left. Absolutely. You're not killed in the home. You're often hunted down afterwards. And and if we had have known, if someone had have told us um, any of those, or even the solicitor, for example, like um, mum, mum had actually recorded coercive control. Basically, she had a diary, right, that she'd been recording um, and about six months previously to us leaving because she just wanted to divorce our father and she was recording what she thought was just unreasonable behavior, right? And she wanted to use that as like the proof so she could just divorce him. And we looked at it and thought, it's just, this is what we've always lived with. It's just unreasonable behavior, right? People get divorced precisely because of this or affairs. This is normal, right? This is a normal divorce. A father is just, you know, dealing with it how, in his stupid way. And mum presented it all to a solicitor because she just wanted to check some of the threats, right, that he was making, like burning the house down, blah, 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 building debts up in her name and some of the vague threats to our lives that now we recognize very clearly for what they were. But she presented it to a solicitor who just looked at it from a purely legal perspective and said, he can't do this. If he does this, these are your mechanisms, da, da, da. but never went, this is, you know, this is a crime. This is abuse. You know, leaving is dangerous. Like there was never yeah. a criminal aspect. It was just the purely like, this, this is the civil courts and whatever. And actually what shocked us looking back actually is how many people did see it. Um, and the thing yeah. that made us not recognize how dangerous it was, was because every time someone saw it, they didn't say anything or even say it was bad. Yeah. And actually every time that happens over millions of instances in your life, you learn it's normal. Absolutely. We just went through the process of learning that everything that was happened to us was entirely normal. Even the stuff at the end, which frankly in retrospect is really weird. But again, it was just a quiet acquiescence, a sort of acceptance of our lives from others. Yeah. And we just thought, well, this is, what divorce is, this is what goes on behind closed doors. It's just normal. And to go back to you guys sitting in the van, your mother's mm. been driven off by your dad. And yeah. then what happened after that? Well, yeah, we got it from the work in a moving van, came back, got the stuff, the, the locksmith came, and then we just headed over to the new house. Um, funnily enough, I guess, is a little side story to that one. We actually, we didn't have any food or anything. And, and mum just took the ketchup from the house. Um, our father had everything else, like a full fridge, full freezer. And mum even made him sandwiches that she left on the table with a little note saying, I'll email you later. And um, we just had the ketchup with like pizza when we got to the new place. But one of the really creepy, scary things, the level of entitlement from our father was exemplified in the murder note that he left behind. And one of the first lines in it was actually, um, the day you left, you shouldn't have taken the ketchup because you know how much I like ketchup, you know how upset that makes me. It shows a distinct like lack of concern for my feelings, blah, blah, blah. And frankly, that was the level of the murder note. And it was that kind of stuff that he'd burned into his brain over the whole time, over nearly 25 years. These tiny trivial instances that had apparently wounded him deeply. Mm. And at the very end of his murder note was effectively, um, you know, like, this is an act of revenge. And actually there's nothing that I can do, it was what he said, that will equal the pain you've caused me, even killing all of us, right? He saw yeah. he saw what he did to us. It wasn't an emotional loss of control. It was a genuine moral crusade mm. almost. He was Punishing good, you. we were evil. Yeah. And actually even murdering us all wouldn't have equated to the damage we'd done him, right? And I think that shows the level of kind of narcissism like that that you can blow trivial instances in your own life out of proportion to be bigger than other people's yeah. entire existence right and and that was the the level of frankly what we'd lived with how long did your mother and charlotte live in the house before he sort of you know when did yeah. he clock it 
um, mum was in the house for maybe four or five days. Okay. Um, and then Shah actually was on holiday with a boyfriend. She only came back the night before with mum. And then they went swimming the next day. We're actually there. Our father had arranged to meet them in public so they could exchange pictures and some documents and stuff. And mum and Shah obviously felt safe because they were in public, right? Like In the car park? Or yeah, inside? in the car park. Yeah. So they thought, as we all did, as I think anyone would, that you know, our father didn't have a gun. <laughs> and if he also was going to be violent, people would intervene and, and you know, and, and yeah. he wouldn't be able to get very far. But as it turns out, our father convinced himself that he was going to kill and he was going to kill himself. And someone with that mentality is almost unstoppable unless you get there first. And I think um, we, as you said, we never appreciated, frankly, we never appreciated how dangerous he was because we'd always... I guess we'd always just seen it as money problems. We'd always seen it as trivial stuff and it'd been normalized from people looking in. So we could never have understood that it would have got to that point. And it was only after the murders when we were literally in the police station and we saw a poster on cross control that we started to actually unravel it all and really interpret all of our experiences through that lens. And we saw that everything was part of it, right? And mm. suddenly things that had no meaning were really part of a huge plan that we'd never seen being enacted. And he shot your mother and your sister in the car park yeah. and then turned the gun on himself. That's right, he? yeah. So I think our father, he, it was funny. He always used to, like I said, he always just made such a big deal out of health conditions, right? Everything was, we were always killing him. It was worst thing in the world. But he hated, he, he hated himself, right? You can't be like, the man like that, you can't enjoy being alive and be like that to other people. Um, he was always, I genuinely thought maybe one day he's just going to kill himself. And that was our hope, frankly, <laughs> that he would. And that was how we hoped to get rid of him. Um, but our father was, yeah, he was, he was a really, really difficult man to live with. But none of us had appreciated, frankly, just the level of self-destructiveness that he had. We thought he was incompetent, um, as I said. But he'd been planning to, I think, commit suicide for just maybe every year. Because when we were in the house... Our father used to get up in the middle of the night, maybe like two, two o'clock in the morning, and he would just storm, well, not necessarily storm, but he would pace up and down the stairs and through the corridors for hours, right? Um, it could be from two to like five in the morning. You'd just hear him walking backwards and forwards, up and down the corridors. Blah, blah, blah. And it's very clear that actually that was him. As soon as he was committed to killing himself, then he would kill us. He would never kill us and then stand the judgment of others, right? He right. could never stand the judgment of others at all. So only when he was committed to killing himself would he would he murder and it's very clear from the eyewitness reports of the day that our father killed him shot and then he spent a period of time just pacing because he was just trying to get himself into that frame of mind and i think when we look back actually we're lucky that we did get out because it would have been more of us right mm. um because he was planning to kill us for a very very long period of time and he was actually at the point where he he was convinced to kill us he just wasn't convinced to kill himself and it was only when we left that i guess the masculine shame or whatever it ridden across him and then he decided that he was willing to kill himself and that yeah. was frankly the bit that tipped it over the edge i think you're listening to justice with edwina grosvenor life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've got so many hundreds of questions, I don't really know where to start. But one yeah. thing that really strikes me, and when I heard you speak at the conference in Brighton, I sort of couldn't really believe, because it's such a deeply upsetting story, actually. Mm. Um, even, you know, in the world that I work in, in prisons, and your yeah. sort of your tolerance is actually higher for distressing stories. It's still a deeply distressing story. Um, but you speak about it so eloquently and so sort of openly. Yeah. That that's quite confusing in itself, because you sort yeah. of think... How so? How have you managed to deal with it? I guess if that's not too yeah. much of a sort of so I used stupid to think, question. So funnily enough, I used to think nothing was that bad because I was incredibly. We were very good at school, and also incredibly resilient kids. Like Mum was the most resilient person in the world, right? And we learned everything from Mum. So Mum had Mum had a range of health conditions. She suffered from cancer. She suffered from really degenerative multiple sclerosis, and she also had a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, which is effectively the nerves in your face just fire pain. At the maximum level, your nervous system can produce pain, right? So mum was on maximum morphine that you can be prescribed without becoming an addict. She had several operations on her brain uh, to numb parts of her body, so this couldn't affect her anymore. But mum never winced. She never complained. She never cried. She just, I mean, she used to get knocked out in the evenings, right? Because she just take these drugs and she could only stay awake for about 10 hours. And then she would basically pass out and we'd have to carry her up to bed. And our father would exploit this, actually. And I think it's one of the reasons he never had to be violent was because... By creating stress, you activate someone's nervous system. By activating someone's nervous system, you cause these, these, to trigger these attacks, basically. So our father didn't need to hit mum because he had a direct connection to her nervous system by creating stress. And he would often exploit it and he would create stress at home. Mum would enter these massive attacks. Um, and then he would say to her afterwards, your attacks become more and more frequent, you know, we'll save up some more money, we'll screw it away. So the research they're doing in this area, you know, one day they'll have a cure and we can help you and whatever. But he was never going to. He was just using it to exploit them economically more. But also, it allowed him to basically ply mum with more morphine because he's like, it's getting worse. You know, you need more morphine just to make her even more passive. But we saw mum. We knew how much she was struggling. I can't even imagine how much how hard life was for mum. And I think the stress created many of these conditions. And I think it definitely exacerbated it. But she never whimpered at all. And growing up as kids, we just wanted to be like mum. And our father was quite emotionally extravagant, like and histrionic and had outbursts. And, and I always saw emotions as weak. Like so I saw them in my father and I never saw my mother who was just like loving, but deeply resilient. Um, and I suppose I only realized after the murders actually that there's two main ways that children often adapt to trauma. And I never saw the way I was adapting as a trauma response. And the two ways that this psychologist explained to me was that Children can either amplify their emotions because your emotions are basically a distress signal, right? And you, you're hoping someone might help you. You believe someone might help you. And those children are the sort of traditionally distressed children that many of us look for and see, right? 
But the other response that children will take if they think no one will help them, if they think there is no help, is they will take the burden on themselves. They'll become self-reliant. And often they'll intellectualize their trauma. They'll just treat it as a problem as best they can. And they'll try and fix it. And I remember feelings just felt bad being at home. This always felt bad. So I pretty much felt the only way I could concentrate on school to make mum proud to create the life that I hope we could was literally just to stop feeling. And I remember going through a process of almost brutalizing myself, trying to numb parts of how I felt mm. and expose myself to stuff and just trying to like go over it and over it and over it and over and over the pain till eventually it went away. And actually, I remember being young at school and people used to say to me, you're incredibly mature, you're probably grown up, incredibly resilient. And I remember being in a classroom full of kids where the rest of them were riding the waves of life between highs and lows and blah, blah, blah. And I was like a rock, like I am now, talking about murders of my family, just a child who was like a rock. And actually, people never saw that as a problem, right? They were like, he's resilient, he's intelligent. Box is ticked, done. Yeah, don't need but to worry about But the point is, him. I decoupled myself from circumstances and people because I didn't like being manipulated. I didn't like feeling other people's pain. I took myself away like an island. Uh, so I had no emotional well-being, I suppose, or skills and no social skills and friends or anything. But the resilience itself was a learnt response. People mm. aren't just born resilient. And resilience is trained from a source of distress, right? If you have a source of distress in your life, you either become distressed or you become resilient. And a child that's incredibly resilient has probably, well, it doesn't matter if they're dealing with it, they probably have a huge source of distress in their life and they might not be safe. And I think a lot of people looking at me as a child just thought, you know, what else does he need? Like, I didn't seem to need much. Like I said, I'd learned to sort of give up on wants and stuff. I wasn't a needy, entitled kid. I just got on with stuff. And I think actually the way that I'd learned to cope with it all was to just detach parts of myself, to compartmentalize parts of myself and to focus. And I think I, my brain, I remember just trying to clear it up. I just wanted space to think and to focus. And I think even now I don't connect with people emotionally at all. I connect to people on the level of ideas because right. everything in my head is intellectual because I like thinking and understanding, but I really don't like feeling because it puts me out of control, right? So you notice that now, do you? Yeah. Is, is that a problem? I suppose I- I mean, I know it's me, a coping Yeah, mechanism. it's a coping mechanism, right? But also it's so entrenched and it's the only thing I know that actually it's really hard for me to think of being any other way. And every time I do feel stuff, it's still instinctive for me to just turn it off because I don't like it. And also I don't really know what to do with that. I suppose feelings in a way, the way that the world affects you. And often I feel like the way that I think is the way that I can affect the world. And I think for me growing up, I made that distinction very early and then made a point of just severing as much as I could emotionally. And is and, it something yeah. you work on or want to work on? Or are you like, nope, it's fine. I like ideas and I like studying. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time, so instead of socializing, I spend a lot of time studying, uh, a lot of my free time studying. And I spend a lot of my time just, I think for me, trying to understand the world makes me feel safe and also it makes me feel that I can do something better um, yeah. to make something positive out of what's happened. So maybe in the future I will, but I think for me, that was the way that I learned to deal with it by, frankly, it's not it's not a fully positive. And in fact, you, you have to sacrifice a huge amount of yourself to survive. And I think that's the thing that I've learned from reflecting on my own resilience is that actually it's the things that I've had to give up. It's not some, It's not a pure strength. In fact, it's almost becoming leaner but by sacrificing huge parts of yourself. And and I learned that from mum, I suppose, because she was doing it so that we didn't get consumed with problems that we can help with. Mm. And I think for me, it was a similar thing as well, where I could, in that, in that environment growing up, I didn't want to be a burden on mum. 
and I don't want to burden on everyone else. And you all just want to be rocked for each other and you all just want to make it look like everything's fine so they can spend as much time as they can looking after themselves, right? Yeah. But funnily enough, you're all doing the same thing and uh, none of you actually spend much time thinking about yourselves at all. And, yeah. And, and what about Ryan? Yeah. I know he's not here today to um, yeah. speak for himself, but yeah. uh, uh, have you noticed a similar thing with him? I mean, obviously siblings are so different. So yeah. I imagine he deals with things very differently. Yeah, so Ryan's more emotional, definitely. And I think for Ryan, like I remember growing up, I just wanted to get out of the house. And when I went to university, I just tried to stay away and saw myself as enacting a plan. Like I can earn money and send money home and it's very functional purpose. But Ryan, particularly Charlotte, were much more, they lived in the day-to-day -day and they Ryan kept coming home from university every single weekend to be at home, just to dilute our father's behavior and just to be there solidarity i suppose with mum and charlotte and just to sort of soak it up and try and support mum and charlotte as much as he could like emotionally so ryan was always much more connected and and i think he took things wounded him more deeply whereas for me i just tried not to feel stuff and think about it as rationally as i could to and do what's best of disassociation yeah but ryan was much more involved in it all and um and i think for ryan actually so i remember growing up even though i didn't really like socializing i could do it relatively well because I saw it as serving a purpose that I could keep myself safe right if people if you try and withdraw yourself from groups people see you as an outsider and didn't do you a lot of good so you often sort of semi-integrate yourself and socialize superficially just keep yourself safe I guess so you did enough so I did enough to look like sure I knew what I was doing weird, weird and, right yeah. and when you're a teenager you just want to be normal That's right clever. so I I did it and spent most of my life socializing to look normal but I really didn't enjoy it and didn't like it. I just wanted to be myself. And after the murders, I took myself out of socializing because I was honestly going to be me. And if people don't like it, I'd, I'm fine with that. Um, but my brother was the opposite, actually. And he couldn't socialize with people. And often people did see him as an outsider. But he deeply wanted to connect with people. But he was afraid to. So we were on opposite ends of the spectrum. And actually, after the murders, Ryan has thrown himself into circumstances. And I had never had a girlfriend before the murders, even. And afterwards, he just, I think he was so afraid. And become so passive from close control, just and destroys your agency entirely right and like, you become so passive and i think for my brother afterwards he just wanted to try stuff um and and start integrating himself so for him it's been a very different experience and we're kind of coming out from different ends of the spectrum mm. really which is good and is that yeah is that quite useful because yeah. do you look and kind of go oh maybe i could nudge myself <laughs> towards feeling and then you might be like oh god no i don't want all yeah. the difficulties he might be getting up to in relationships or or whatever do you yeah i think so i think for the funny thing is actually growing up we've always and I think this is incredibly common talking to people. You form a lot of emotional bonds with animals, right? When you're in really emotionally devastating environments growing up, you develop alongside animals. And I, I remember Charlotte loved generally like, we used, people we used to like, because we had so much grass where we used to live in those 10 years, people would just give us their animals just to like eat all the grass and stuff, right? And and people with horses and cows and sheep and stuff would just turn up. And Charlotte used to love them. She'd spend all day just with the animals, right? Just milling around, just following them around, hugging them, looking after feeder and whatever. And as kids, we all kind of, we learned it from Charlotte, I think mainly, but we learned to sort of triangulate our emotions and care through the animals. And our dogs are really important later in our life that, our father would often get in the way of us showing emotions towards each other, right? He hated us showing emotions. He'd call us sissies. He'd call us losers. He said mum caring for us was going to turn us gay or whatever, right? He just, he had this super hyper-masculine view of parenting, right? We will we'll learn is something he'd always say when we were basically just exposed to stuff that we shouldn't be exposed to. Um, but what our father basically did stopping mum from trying to care for us and us caring for each other. We kind of learned to do three animals. So we'd just pour love into the animals. 
Um, and that was how we showed that we cared for each other, right? Because we all cared about animals. So it was a way that we could sort of just kind of remind each other. And I think we still do for me. Most of them, I'm fully open to feeling with animals, but when right. I'm around people, I'm fully protected, exactly. right? Them to talk back to and so like for me, that. it's, uh, and I think the same with Ryan again, but it's, I think they've always, they're a kind of sanctuary, right? And actually, you know, the animals just, they're just like, particularly dogs, incredibly loyal. And they always serve such an important purpose in our life. And I think, that's that's our kind of that's our island of safety and i think right. for me so it'd be like moving forward right like. yeah and, and my brother that was kind of for mum and charlotte and the dogs that was it for him he just that was where his life was and i think where mum and charlotte were taken away he just realized that he needed to connect because it he wasn't willing to give up on it i suppose in the way that i was i was like feeling is just another route for pain sometimes isn't it and if you care about people it's just another route for the opposite so I kind of, my instinct is shut things down and then slowly walk back in. But my brother just kind of threw himself into it. And after the murders, he, he was just, he was skydived. He just started jumping out of planes. He got a <laughs> motorbike and was just going wow. to So for him, I think he just realized he just wanted to smash through it. And that yeah. fear was something that he just wanted to just eradicate from day one. Whereas for me, I just shut off and then I take really slow, tensive steps. And, right. um, and I suppose that, We'll probably end up in 20 years, we'll probably end up sort of maybe knowing what we're doing. But we're kind of, we're working towards the middle anyway. Yeah, and maybe we seem from... to be doing remarkably well yeah. so far from the little that I know of you. Um, mm. I wondered whether you knew much about or know much about your father's upbringing. You know, what makes, you know, how yeah. does someone become like that? I think we're slowly as a society beginning to talk about and beginning to understand coercive control i think a lot of people still have absolutely no idea because quite frankly if you haven't grown up with it or seen it hmm. how on earth would you ever think that someone would control your sort of lights and your heating and <laughs> yeah. your, you know it's so abstract for people it's like oh yeah. you don't have a broken leg or a bruise so i can't quite compute what's going on yeah so what happened to your father do you think in his life do you know anything yeah. about that so i guess we we knew nothing about coercive control despite living with it we never saw the meaning in what he was doing after the murders, a lot of people would start us. What was your father's childhood like? Most of the grandparents died uh, very early in our lives, but our father's mum has dementia. So she's sort of been out of it for a while. But um, we we were just like, what the hell, what was his life like, you know? So um, he's got a sister and, and we were just kind of asking people who knew him, like, what was what was it like, you know? Because our father never told us about before we met mum. And we didn't care because we didn't like him. We we're just like, fine, whatever, don't tell us about yourself. Mm. We'd rather not. But after the murders, we were just like trying to figure out, was there a huge trauma that happened or something or whatever? But actually there wasn't at all. And I think we'd always seen domestic abuse as being about emotions and being about hot headedness and being about a lost control. Unfortunately, our experiences were cold hearted, rational and an excess of control. So we were looking for the wrong thing. And actually when we looked into our father's childhood, we were looking for the wrong thing too. And it was only when we started to unearth more and more about him that we realized that actually his childhood was middle-class and like serenely perfect, like out of the beginning of a mm, horror film, right? Then, right. And but does that indicate that, cause you can still be abused by just being neglected and ignored. Yeah, but actually his sister said that that didn't happen in their lives actually. And one of the things that was re that really stood out actually, when we saw the murder note, I think that framed just how entitled our father was. And when we heard about their upbringing, what it effectively was was an incredibly gendered upbringing where our father, his father, based was in the Navy and traveled around the world. But his mum, crucially, was a 1950s textbook housewife. And she just conceived of herself as a housewife and nothing else. And she just wanted to be a great housewife. And our father grew up with basically his father being sort of very traditionally masculine and his mum just doing 
lived only, the only domain she cared about was the house. She was uneducated, didn't drive, didn't work, whatever, and just followed her husband around every time we got a new job, whatever. And our father very clearly from um, talking about his kind of relationship histories, he felt the, the loss of his mum when he left, I think enormously because, uh, and that's something we saw in our father when we were living with him. He expected us to invisibly and silently compensate for all of his weaknesses, right? He didn't know how to look after himself at all, but we had to do it without him ever having to request it. And one thing that I remember all the time is that our father, if he wanted something, he would start mumbling and huffing and he couldn't, he couldn't articulate what he wanted. But if he had to, he would be so angry. We would like, you know how like a baby starts crying, everyone just rushes things at it. Like, yeah. is this what you want? It yeah. was like that Rassles, growing up. food, Yeah, milk. like what is it? Oh, what do you <laughs> oh, need, right? Oh God, stop. panic. And that's what our father was like. And actually his relationship history when he left the home was very, very quick. He was moving from woman to woman, just trying to get someone like his mum, basically, I suppose. And, and one thing we found out that really struck us was before he met mum, he was actually married to another lady and he'd met her very quickly. He got married to her very quickly. And as soon as they married, she just left. And I think our father had imposed his demands upon her, There's thinking that rejection. he'd got her and then she just disappeared. And that when he was actually, before he divorced his previous wife, he met our mum, who's from a poor family. He got impressed her with his money, flattered her, whatever, said he'd create a great life. And I was had very early into the relationship. And then he married mum shortly afterwards. So he had a child because I think he saw that as key to pinning mum down. Right. Then and he married the her. Yeah. And then he and then he moved isolated her, et cetera, et cetera. But I think our father had actually, more than anything, he realized that he couldn't find a woman like his mum. He had to create one. And actually what he was learning through his life wasn't what women are. He was learning how to make one into what he what he conceived they should be. And he had really strong gendered views. Like I remember growing up and he would always say to him, he would quote, till death do us part, you said this, these were our vows. He, like it was a contract for him, right? And he didn't see mum as autonomous, he didn't see her as having freedom or anything. He just basically saw it as a contract with the mum had signed and it had a particular meaning for him that clearly mum wasn't aware, but he was always saying, we agreed to this, now I'll just get on with it basically. Um, and I think what was very clear to us was I felt like a child. Mm -hmm. I felt I was parenting him, frankly, growing up, even as a child myself. And the entitlement that he had, he expected mum to look after him, not us. He had pri like primacy. It's and so almost like a bit jealous of you guys. He was you were entirely just like, oh, jealous. You know, you take up the, his, yeah. the, your mother's bandwidth. And, and that's why he was controlling was us so much, right? You. Because he had an idea of how mum should be. And the control was to channel her into becoming that. And that's the purpose the control serves. Is it often, like, why would you control light switches? Why would you control this, that, and the other? But in prisoner of war camps, for example, they enforce trivial control because it habituates mm -hmm. it. You learn it to obey, right? Slowly. It's just routine. Do what yeah. you're told, do what you're told, do what you're told. My father was crafting us into precisely what he felt we should be. And that was all derived, frankly, from those really gendered views that he had. And I think our father was, he saw himself as ultra-masculine, but he, he wasn't macho, but he had, he was committed to that worldview, right? Of what men are and what women are. And he was using that control to facilitate it. And I think the violence can be seen as destructive, like killing one shark can be seen as destructive. But to him, I think it was seen as constructive. He was using that violence to reinforce his worldview, right? And I think when men like our father are violent, they're using it to, to reshape what's in front of them because they have intention of how it should be. And I think only when you see people like our father with a really driven ideology, with a worldview, 
and is frankly radicalized, you can see why they are behaving the way they are. Because our father had very moral views about gender. This yeah. is what you should be doing. This is what I should be doing. Although on his side of the fence, there were very little obligations at all. But actually for him, he was, he, he saw frankly, I think, the home as the only place that he could manifest his masculinity, right? He had no education. He part-time in a wage. He, he didn't succeed in the free market, in mm. the big public world, right? So for a man like that, to, who's really believed strongly in what it is to be a man in a really rigid sense, the only way to bring that about is in private. It's yeah, where your you house have is your castle, the house, right? And, yeah. and actually you have to dominate people if you want to feel powerful. You have to impose your will on people if you want to feel like you have some sort of um, status. And I think he created that part of his life precisely to feed his kind of masculine identity. And actually yeah. it w- he was clearly a man who was incredibly wounded, um, but it was from his def- really weird sense of pride about what it is to be a man. And, and fundamentally, that's i think entirely where it came from and actually our father wasn't he never had any mental health problems like traditional mental health problems whatever they were all related to us disobeying him often and then as soon as we did everything's fine right and it was there was frankly that was the key bit i think was just about him trying to feel like a man you said um earlier that your mother kept a diary did you keep that We've got it somewhere, yeah. We sort of, um, I think we didn't want to read it because it was just a bit too emotional afterwards. But um, we've got it stored away somewhere of all the things that mum had recorded. And she was incredibly matter-of-fact about it, actually. Mm. I think she she obviously didn't see the meaning behind it all and mm. whatever. But I think me and my brother, we've written our book to sort of help people understand quest What's control in general. What's your book called? Uh, Remembered Forever, um, about, about our life, really, to give a bigger context. But we were thinking, actually... One of the really hard things to understand about coercive control is the day-to-day stuff, right? When you're living in it, to see it in front of you. And we were thinking actually maybe publishing that um, would help people just see what mum was going through in every moment, right? Because to talk about abstractly and in a bigger perspective, you might miss it when it's directly in front of you. And I think it's really unfortunate that we couldn't see it, but hopefully what we're trying to do is just fill the gaps that wasn't there for us growing up. And if we can put that out there so other people can, it can fill some gap and help them understand and that would be really important. And if people want to get in touch with you or, you know, are you happy uh, yeah, for people to be in touch? Do, do quite a lot of people get hold of you and have you had many people saying we're kind of in the same situation? Yeah, we get a lot of people contacting us, but often it's um, often it's people who know, right? They right. know they're going through domestic abuse and they'll contact us and they're going through maybe the courts or going through the systems and we never went through any of the systems, so we don't have much experience with it, but often... Um, it's a different world, I think, when they're when you get trapped in the systems, right? And and a lot of people find it very disempowering, and they're quite scared actually, because I think they they see, they know, they've studied, they see the risk in their partner, but they feel the system doesn't, and they feel mm. they're being mm. um, it's like pressure, right? They're being put with this person, a lot of pressure applied, and they feel incredibly unsafe, and they are they reach out for help, and unfortunately, we can't help them with that, but we try as best we can just to help people recognize the seriousness of control and behavior mm-hmm. so that when people get to this point, judges, whoever they're encountering will understand and not trivialize. And and if our story becomes a template that people can understand close control to murder, then actually they can start to understand that these people, um, they're not crazy and they actually understand the significance of what's going on, which yeah. unfortunately we didn't. So these many of these people are much further ahead than we are. So how can people get hold of you? Or um, do you have yeah. a website? Well, or? me and my brother, we created, uh, we called it Coco Awareness, just Coerce Control Awareness after um, what happened to us to try and raise awareness. And it's kind of just grown organically, but people can reach out to us if they want to. Coco Awareness. Coco Awareness, yeah. yeah. And we just sort of, um, we can, 
if we can help at all, then we will. But um, often it's, I think for what we found, one of the best things is just to speak about this publicly because yeah. often um, there's not a m- much political awareness of, of domestic abuse because often it's unsafe, right? And also it's quite hard to talk badly of your parents, say, when they're still alive, especially if they're old and elderly. It feels like you're, yeah. it's a bit harsh, right? But actually um, for a lot of people, it, it, it's just, it's not fertile environment to talk about this sort of stuff. And I think we've got a position to do it, but a lot of people don't realize how bad it is because most people are afraid or it's unsafe to talk about. Um, but if it is safe, then we just encourage people just to try and make more noise because I think politically it doesn't get anywhere near the attention that it deserves. And we do everything we can to try and help that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, chatting to me about it. And I was so struck by meeting you at that event in Brighton. So um, yeah. it's just brilliant, I think, what you're doing. And, and hopefully lots of people will listen to the podcast. Yeah. Hopefully lots of people will share it yes. with judges, magistrates, police. I mean, anyone, because yeah. I think the more education that people get around this, the better. So thank you so much. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.